Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We continue in our, our series on our weekend services in this, this really important design that God has for the life, not only of his church, but the life of every individual who is a believer in Christ. And, and the design of God is that our lives, our church's life, should make a significant impact in our world, in our community. But the only way for us to do that isn't that we work harder or we work smarter, but that we welcome and we anticipate and we prepare for the baptism of the Holy Spirit over the church, not just over individuals, but an outpouring of the Spirit of Christ in our day. And so we go back to the blueprint that God showed us in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit shows us in that first century church. So let's read that together. This is Acts 2, verses 37 through 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. As we continue in this passage, you'll see that it then resulted in something that created a gospel community. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, what we're really talking about, and I've been using the word renewal, but a synonymous word that's used is the idea of revival. And so God loves to revive his church. He loves to pour out his spirit on his church so that the church can make a significant impact in the world. And revival means that the Holy Spirit can be poured out on the church in such a way that like Acts chapter 2, we experience in this generation what was experienced here in Acts. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a visitation of the Holy Spirit on the church. And he does it in a generation 
to speak of Jesus, to illumine Jesus, to make Jesus real. The result of that, not the, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to speak of Jesus, to illuminate to us who Jesus is, and to make Jesus more real to us than even the problems that we're facing. But the, the byproduct of that is that as he pours out his spirit on us, you experience love like never before. If there's any iffiness that you have in the love of God, then you need a fresh manifestation of his love. You need a fresh touch of his Holy Spirit. If you cannot access joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, then you need a fresh unction of the Holy Spirit, a fresh anointing of his joy. These things are being filled in, in indescribable ways of his love and his joy lead to the most profound experience of assurance that you belong to God and that God belongs to you. And then that leads to boldness, courage, and confidence. These are things that we must have if we're going to make a difference in this, this generation. And it can only happen if the Spirit is poured out. Not in just an average way, but in the way that he was poured out in Acts 2. And Peter is explaining the promise of Joel is a promise for all of us. He will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So we're really talking about the very simple but marvelous job of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what he wants to do. This is his primary purpose. His primary purpose isn't to give us gifts. His primary purpose isn't to give us power, though those things do come from his outpouring. But his primary thing is to make Jesus real to us and to make Jesus real to our community through us. This is, this is what Jesus himself explained. He will make me known, he said. He will glorify me, Jesus said. And the Father made the promise to Jesus as he went to the cross when Jesus says, Father, glorify this hour. And the Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Well, that's the, that is the purpose and the role and the function of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus real to our community by making him real to us. See, what's so easy is to see all our problems as real and Jesus as less real. To see the pandemic, the COVID-19, as the only real thing because of what it's done in our lives and our community. Or it's easy to look and to see this injustice that we're seeing in our world, to see the unfairness or to see the lack of security in terms of racial equality and racial justice. And, and because it's such a dramatic thing and because it's right in our faces right now, it's easy to think that's real. But not to believe or not to understand that Jesus is even more real than the problems we face. And in some ways, we will not be able to see any resolution to these deep, systemic, or even generational sins and curses in our society or in our own lives unless Jesus becomes more real than the results of our past sins or our past decisions or our past consequences that are coming to bear on us right now. 
Jesus has to be made real, not by just the preacher's preaching or teacher's teaching, but by the Holy Spirit illumining Jesus in the midst of our troubles. Now, a way to look at this as far as how the scriptures and how the Bible begins to unfold a vision of a revived church or a vision of a church full of the life of the Spirit is to look at the church like an altar. This is the dynamic of renewal. In a sense, there's a role that only God can play, but there is a role that we are called to play. For example, whenever there was to be worship, whenever there was to be the manifest presence of God experienced by the people, an altar was prepared. So the people prepared the altar, but God sent the fire. The people built the tabernacle and then later built the temple, but it was God who sent the glory. You see, you need both. You need an altar prepared. That's our responsibility. That's your heart, my heart. That's our hunger and our thirst for God. It's our attention and and focus towards God that, that builds an altar, that builds a tabernacle. But you see, when we have prepared the altar, when we have prepared the tabernacle, then God is the one who sends the fire, and God is the one who sends the glory. And that's, that's really what this blueprint is all about. We have a role to play, but it's also we have to be asking and looking for and desperate for the fire and the glory. Now, if you're going to prepare an altar, if you're going to build a tabernacle, there's a negative side of this. In other words, the ground has got to be cleared. There's room that has to be made. There's space that has been taken up by things that are not life-giving. There's space that's been taken up by things that the Spirit will not send the fire for or the glory to. One of the areas that helps us to see this really clearly, is in Jeremiah's call. Here he is, going to be a prophet, not only for his generation, but for all generations. He's going to be a prophet, not just to his people, but to the nations. And yet he is called when he is a teenager. And the call on him is is such a powerful one, but listen to how God structures the call. I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms. Now listen. To uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Do you see, before he gets to the two verbs about building and planting, before he gets to the positive, there are four verbs about how it has to be cleared, what has to be torn down, before there can be building and before there can be planting. See, one of the issues that's happening in our day and, and is that our God knows exactly what has to be torn down in order for that which is just, that which is right, that which is beautiful, that which is equality to be built up. That things have to be torn down before you build and integrate the evil and the corruption with the purity and the beauty. And so whenever in a season that we are saying, Holy Spirit, we want you to come, we also have to be willing and ready to hear what has to be torn down in order that he might build 
and he might plant. You see, we have to be willing when we see obstacles, obstacles in the way of the fullness of God, obstacles in the way of the fire of God, then we have to be willing to remove those obstacles no matter how much it costs us. Because in the end, the Holy Spirit's only going to anoint gospel truth. He will only baptize that which is in alignment with the mission of Jesus. Now, this isn't just a corporate issue. Obviously, there are often times when as a church or as an organization that you have to stop and say, what is God saying to our organization? What do we need to repent of? And there can be a corporate repentance. There can be an identificational repentance. But often we're really dealing with the Holy Spirit first and foremost coming to the individuals who are hungry for the move of the Holy Spirit who will say, like Jeremiah, I am listening, I am receiving your words, and I will do whatever you're asking me to do. I will remove and repent of the obstacles in my life that are not in alignment with the mission of Jesus. Look at what's happened for these last three months. We have all had to reorder our lives. We have all had to reorder our schedules. Let's not waste this opportunity when things have been removed from our control, when things have been removed from our ability to affect the results that we might want to, ha to happen. Let's not, let's not waste this opportunity to remove any obstacles, any space that needs to be cleared so the Holy Spirit can anoint, can give unction to, can empower everything in your life. He is committed to fulfilling the mission of Jesus. Is there something in your life where the resources of your life and the strength of your life and the talents of your life where it is not in alignment with the mission of Jesus? Then it's time to repent and to get back into alignment because the Holy Spirit will not bless he will not anoint what is outside of the truth of the mission of Christ. Do not waste this time. Whatever God has been showing you, you do not need or, or you do not want in your life. This is the time to let the Holy Spirit burn that up and burn your tie to it and break your tie so you can be free. Well, what's the positive side then? Well, we see what he wants to visit. And we see something of what it will look like. In Acts chapter 2, there's a both and an and. What we prepare, they were many days in preparation in the upper room for what the Spirit would do. They began to have something of a structure and an organization, a form of organization that could provide for the thousands who were coming to Christ. But at the same time, there's this thing where we have to have that space for the, what God will provide by His Spirit. And, and part of it is to understand the biblical idea of church. In the Bible, the church is both an organism and it's an organization. We must, because it is an organism, we must receive life. We can't make ourselves alive by working harder or programming or anything else. We can only receive life, but we also have to have something in place that can receive that life. It's a delicate balance. There are a number of things. I, I have been in the pastoral ministry since 1983. But even when I was in college, I began to get a vision 
for what I thought the church should be. And the very first really clear, clear and clarifying vision that I had for the church that I wanted to lead or pastor was found in Acts chapter 2. And then also in Acts chapter 4 where we see more of this, this realization of what a spirit-baptized church looks like. There's a boldness there. There's a confidence there. They can go through any struggle. They can go through any deprivation and their power is not diminished. Their power is actually increased. And I, and I, I saw that picture of what we're going to talk about in a few, few minutes from Acts chapter 2. But what really grabbed me was when Lisa and I got married, she was going to a church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I moved up there to get married to her and to live in Bowling Green with her while she finished school. And so we started going to this church together. And it was a very powerful experience for me. The, the church had been founded back in the 1800s. It was, it was a Presbyterian church, but it was founded by uh, freed slaves. And it was actually named after the founder. It was called Cecilia Presbyterian Church. And what had happened is it had stayed a... A, a, a single ethnicity church up until the 1970s or so when the church was down to just a few members. And here these, these leaders of the church who had, who had been there for generations and who were, the, who were the recipients of an amazing heritage of this church found themselves no longer able to sustain the church. The organization they were a part of wanted to close the church because there wasn't enough money and there weren't enough people and there were no signs of growth. So these, about eight people altogether, decided that they would do something radical. They were all African Americans, but they went to the university, Western Kentucky University, where there was an amazing department of religion led by evangelicals and by some of the highest scholars, evangelical scholars in America. And they asked one of the top scholars, Greek scholars, New Testament scholars, to be their pastor. So here you have this pretty much, a, a, I would say, a, a blue-collar, working-class church, African-American, had always been African-American, that stepped outside of their comfort zone in order to have life and invited in probably one of the, the top scholars of Greek and New Testament in the entire country, maybe the world, and said, will you be our pastor? Now, I, his name was Dr. William Lane. And what happened by that step of crossing over culture, crossing over comfort zones, crossing over traditions, exploded in a remarkable way in that town. There began to be whites and blacks worshiping together side by side, beaming with pride, beaming with confidence and excitement. There were students who came. There were professors who came. The, the, the building had PhDs and, and, and hotel maids all worshiping together and, and, and loving the Lord together and loving one another. There were people who were divorced 
There were people with, you know, kind of stable families and stable marriages. There were people who had been through every kind of addiction and everything. It was remarkable to be there. And the music that came out of that place. There were some of the people who became really well-known. Michael Card used to play there, and he's the guy that wrote El Shaddai and and a number of other really famous songs. And he used to try those songs out on a Sunday morning as a part of the service. It was, for me as just a 22-year-old, that was in my mind and has always been in my mind. That's what church is supposed to be. But it takes us understanding that we have to build an altar so that God can bring the fire. We have to build the tabernacle so that he can bring the glory. Those those eight people who said, we're not going to let this die. This church needs life. But if we're going to find life in breaking with tradition and breaking with culture. And they they forged a new wineskin and God poured out new wine. It is not something that you have to beg God to do but it's something you have to prepare for God to do. And so as we look at this and we understand this together, he wants to do it in our day. He wants to do it here. So there is this practical aspect and there is this spiritual aspect and they both must be in place for the fire to come, for the life to come, for the glory to come. Here's a practical reality. (laughs) I've learned this over the years. If you have more than 50 people, you need a, micro, a microphone for the Spirit of God to move. Now, that may seem like kind of a strange thing to say, but if people can't hear what you're saying, it doesn't matter how wonderful your message is. And so we have to understand in, in many ways that, that the practical matters, not just the spiritual, but without the spiritual, the practical is lifeless. And so it's a both and. Let me illustrated with a couple of uh, people that, uh, that one I've known and one I've studied. I had a, a church that, I grew, that my mother grew up in. And uh, when I was, Lisa and I were going overseas uh, to plant churches, we had to go around and speak at churches. So this church, which was my mother and my grandmother's heritage church, invited us to come and speak. And so I met with the pastor, and he had been at that church for a very long time, and he told me something really interesting. He said he never prepared his sermons. He never worked on what he was going to preach. He never studied or researched. He just waited on God to give him a word on Sunday mornings. And then he would just speak whatever God gave him to speak. Well, he was very very convinced of his methodology. He was really convinced that it was working. Well, the people in the church who were also, many of them, relatives of my mother or or friends of my parents, they had a different story altogether. They said, he's lazy. He wanders all over the place when he speaks, and we have no idea what he's talking about. See, there, there, there can be people who start to believe we just need to be spiritual. Let's just be spiritual. But sometimes when you're just being spiritual, it's like you got a fire, but you got no place 
to really utilize the fire. The only place that a fire in your house really is effective is if it's in a fireplace or in something that can make the fire useful, like your stove or your hot water heater. But just to let a fire go wild is to burn up everything in sight. So there's a, there's a practical and there's a spiritual. Now, one of my favorite people to read about revival, I don't agree with all of his methodologies and techniques, and, and, and some people use him exclusively as their sort of mentor of revival is a man by the name of Charles Finney. Now, Finney had an amazing experience with God. He was a lawyer. He, he really struggled to come to faith. But he was so being drawn by the Spirit that there was a day in which he said, I'm going to settle this issue. And he went before God, and he was marvelously converted. But after, soon after, even that same day, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. He talks about the baptism of the Spirit coming upon him in such a way that he felt wave upon wave of liquid love. And he talked about how he didn't know if he was even going to survive it because the love was so intense and so powerful. He thought it might just take his life. It was so amazing, the indescribable love that he was experiencing. He went from that powerful baptism into gospel ministry. And everywhere Finney went, revival broke out. An incredible, incredible record of revival. It said that he, he, this was the early 1800s. He's probably the main figure of what's called the Second Great Awakening. And it's said that Finney led, or at least in a direct, some direct way, led about a million people to Jesus. He, you know, you had no... No way of doing mass, you know, communication. You had no amplification or anything else. And yet here is this man full of the power of the love of Christ poured out on him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And everywhere he goes, the presence of God is remarkably experienced. Well, here's, here's his own testimony. Whenever he would sense a loss of that power, he wouldn't go to methodology. He wouldn't say, oh, I need to write better sermons. He'd go deep into prayer and he said, Lord, I'm experiencing a loss. I can't continue in this ministry without fullness of your power. And he would, he would get alone with God. And he would not leave God's presence until he sensed that his power reserves were at full strength. Look, this is what I'm talking about. If the church is more than an organization if there is to be life in the organism, then what we see in, the, in Acts chapter 2 are the five elements that have to be present for a sustainable living church. And Tim Keller likes to call them the five essential vitamins of a living church. And here are the five. So they were devoted to in-depth teaching. The apostolic teaching was an in-depth teaching. It wasn't shallow. It wasn't superficial. It was in-depth. They were devoted to koinonia. Now, we call that fellowship. And you, I always feel like you have to be careful using the word fellowship in a church or with Christians because a lot of time all that kind of conjures up if you've been in the church is like family night dinners or potluck suppers or things like that where there's this sort of superficiality of relationship. 
And so when you really are talking about fellowship or koinonia in the Acts 2 model, there are in-depth friendships. People are entering into one another's lives. They are willing to sacrifice their own comfort in order to comfort others or in order to provide for others. There was vibrant worship. We'll talk more about that. They were reaching out to their community. There was an aggressiveness to their evangelism, to their mission. And then the fifth thing, the fifth element that all has to be visible, manifesting in this spirit-equipped, spirit-poured-out church is social concerns, which are manifest again in that kind of sacrificial sharing with one another. So... This list, these five, when a Holy Spirit has baptized as a church, all five are present at the same time. Now, the reason why it's so important that we, we teach on this and that we get informed on this is because even without the Spirit of God, you can have some of these elements present because you can do them, you can do one of them to the exclusion of the others. Let me, let me illustrate that somewhat. So I grew up in a church, in a culture, a tradition, that viewed teaching and doctrine above everything else. So the, the church that I grew up in had a high view of teaching, was doctrinally trying to be sound and pure, but in regards to evangelism, dead. In regards to any kind of emotional expression of worship, non-existent. And truthfully, it was not a loving, accepting group. I remember the, the pastor's son and I, we were, we were close friends. And God started working in our lives as teenagers. And he was, he was experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit at the same time I was. And so we became close friends. And he, did, he started doing evangelism in his high school. So I started doing evangelism in my high school. And he reached out to a young man who had, who had jumped off a bridge and become paralyzed. And so he began to share Christ with this young man. And so he invited this young man to church. Well, those were in the days where churches and pews and things like that were not very handicapped Accessible. They were not designed for access for those with disabilities. And so the only place he could put this guy's wheelchair was this one specific place. And so he would put him up there and then he would sit next to him so that he could be in the service with him. Immediately, the pastor got complaints about this guy taking a pew that was the traditional pew of the Turner family and they wished he would leave the church. So here's, here is a young man, a teenager, who's gotten on fire for Jesus, starts reaching out to people who need Jesus, and the church said, we don't accept you, you're in our way. And so here, I grew up in one where number one was everything, but number two, number three, number four were not even existent. And number five, um, the stories I could tell about that church in terms of number five, there was no great concern about the needs of the community. The head elder, the chief elder of the church, had made his fortune. He was the richest man in our town, and he had made his fortune by taking advantage of the poor. And so it's, it's crazy when I think about it, 
But that church, because of how much they emphasized teaching and doctrine, thought themselves not only to be a healthy church, but thought themselves to be a pure church. Whereas all these other elements, these other vitamins, these essential nutrients of spiritual life were completely missing. And whenever anybody tried to introduce these elements, they were resisted and attacked. And I'm sure that I could go through, I'm speaking of my own church experience, but I have certainly seen in the towns that I've been in, I've seen churches that were everything about evangelism. But the kind of evangelism that they did seemed manipulative. It seemed religious. (laughs) I have too many bad church stories, but... uh, I'll tell you one more from my, um, my town where I grew up. So the town I grew up in was called Gulfport, Mississippi. It's a, a coastal town. And there was, a, there was a evangelistic, aggressively evangelistic church that was near my neighborhood. And so this church decided they would put up billboards all over town and the billboards would, would invite you to their church, and then it, their logo was such and such church storming the gates of hell. And they had a picture on the billboard of the gates of hell and the pastor like, like shaking the gates on this billboard. You could see him just kind of shaking, and there's fire behind there, and he's just shaking the gates of hell. And that was their aggressive evangelism that they were doing. They held evangelistic meetings all the time. Now here's the weird thing about this. So here's the pastor all over town, his picture, getting the gates of hell, while we find out he's actually a gun runner and a drug runner who's been bringing in drugs from Central America on mission trips and guns from Central America on mission trips. He gets... He gets convicted by the FBI, gets thrown into jail. So he really was uh, holding on to some gates. I don't think it was the gates of hell, hell. It was the gates of jail. So, I mean, you understand why we cannot be just another average church. And we can't just emphasize one of these. We need all five. And the only way that you get all five is to begin to realize that that the Holy Spirit has to baptize us, not only as individuals, but we need an outpouring on our church. So let's look at these five elements just briefly. We'll look at them in more detail in the weeks to follow. I hope you're following me in this. So the first thing that I want to mention is that we see this vibrant, this life-giving worship that took prayer place in this church. They were committed to prayer. They were filled with awe, it said. Now notice something. It says they met together in the temple and in their homes. So what happens to a lot of us is that we have a tendency to have a preferred style of worship, and then we will set that preferred style as if it's the only standard of how God wants to be worshipped. But here we see that they had awe. In other words, they had high worship. But they also had intimacy. They had informal worship. So they had places of public and and formal and majestic worship. But they also had intimate and informal 
worship. They were both in the temple and they were in small settings. Well, what they were experiencing was more than just the omnipresence of God. They were experiencing God's manifest presence. Well, how do you know when God's presence is present? Well, let me just say this. If you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you know. You begin to realize whether it's in the song that someone's singing or the word that someone's bringing or the prayer that someone's praying, you begin to get surprised by how you feel. You begin to get surprised by what you're hearing. You begin to get an experience that's unexpected in a way. I see this so often in our worship services at church. Sometimes I am thinking about what am I going to say in my message and I'm going over in my mind what I'm going to share. But as I'm worshiping and our worship team is leading us, all of a sudden I feel an acceleration. I began to feel something of adrenaline in my heart. And it's not just because I like the beat of the song or I like the lyrics of the song. Something has now taken that song out of the ordinary and I'm beginning to experience the presence of Christ as I sing that song. It's an acceleration. Again, we build the altar he sends the fire. That's what we're looking for when we talk about worship. You, you and I can have preferences as far as style. But the end result shouldn't be that my style gets established as the way of doing it. That what must be established is we will seek the presence of the Lord together because only in his presence is there fullness of joy and only in his presence is the healing that we need. So if we talk about fellowship... One of the things about fellowship is, is really what they were saying about this, this group in the first century is there was a visible love inside the church that everybody was remarking about. The outsiders saw this love, and to them it was inexplicable. How can it be that this group of people are in one place, and they're in one heart, they're in one mind, and they're in one accord? Everybody was noticing it. And even their fellowship and their visible love for each other was drawing people to Christ. Well, if you take what people have said about Risen King to me, we get all kinds of observations. I've had people say it's so warm and friendly. And then there will be others who say to me, no one talked to me, no one met me, no one noticed me. And, and, and the truth is, uh, being here for 16 years... The fact that that's the reaction we get is actually normal. Because that's, that's the way everything is in this area. People come and go. It's transient. People are here for a while. You don't know who the members are, who the visitors are, all that kind of stuff. But here's what I'm trying to get across. It's normal, but that's bad. Because whatever is normal for this secular world, whatever is unnoticeable, whatever is unremarkable, <laughs> is bad. And there are people who will remark and say, well, you all have such a diversity. But I've heard from many of my friends and uh, people that I'm listening to and respect as we talk through the, 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 the racial injustices and the, the issues of racism. And I'm listening and, and I'm realizing surface or the appearance of diversity is not koinonia. And so in order that we can have not just surface diversity, but true in-depth friendships, then 
then that's going to take the Holy Spirit anointing and unction. And, and, and as we see that, it won't be to our glory or to our praise, because when all the believers are in one place, in one accord, it's noticeable because the presence of God is manifesting. Let me take a minute and just talk about what is it, what is it that makes this remarkable diversity become in-depth friendship? What really it takes is that every one of us begin to realize that our identity is what either draws us to people or repels us from people. You see, whatever you believe is the source of your identity is then how you relate to people. So one sociologist said it this way, identity is very labored. It's very, sorry, layered. And so what, 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 what I mean by that is if you were to ask somebody their identity, they would tell you different layers of both who they are and what they do. So I had a good friend when I was church planting in Atlanta. And so I would, I would, when I met him, he said, I'm a lawyer. I'm from New Jersey. My family is English in origin. And, uh, and, and he said, and I've just become a Christian. Now, I said it in that order because that's the priority that he gave to the layers. First and foremost, he was a lawyer. That's where he got his worth. That's where he got his value. And so he either competed to be the best lawyer or the richest lawyer or whatever it is, but that's where he put all of his energy in the beginning of his Christian life. And then he, he had this pride because he thought that he was of English descent. And he actually had prejudice against people who were not of his same descent. The only problem was he really wasn't English at all. He was actually of the culture and ethnicity that he most, uh, was most prejudiced against. His father had changed his name so that he, no one would know that he was from that immigrant group and had given himself an English name and told his children they were English when really they were this whole group that they despised. You see, what happens with us is that when we base our identity on something like ethnicity or culture or our profession or our career or we base it on anything that is temporary, then we will always be in competition with each other. We will, we will either fear those who are better than us or we will despise those who are worse than us in our eyes. It is only when we reorder our identity by the Holy Spirit and we begin to say, first and foremost, above, above my job, my culture, my family, anything whatsoever, above all else, my identity is I'm a Christian, I am in Christ. What matters most, you see, when the Spirit really fills us, what matters most is not our ethnicity, it's not our career, but it's that I belong to Jesus. Because, see, if that's my identity, and I've received that identity, I've not achieved it, then I can't boast in it. And I can't use it to compare myself favorably or unfavorably to you because I'm equal and you're equal to me. If I belong to Jesus then you belong to Jesus and we belong together. 
I, I really, friends, I know that we need legislation. I know that we need a reordering in our government. There are all kinds of things that we need. But here's where we can build the altar. Here's where we can build the tabernacle by us saying, your identity and my identity, we both receive the same worth, the same value, the same righteousness. We belong together. And only the Spirit can do that. So I need to quickly go through the others. Well, aggressive evangelism was evident when the Spirit... Now, the reality, when I talk about aggressive, I'm not talking about the turn or burn people, uh, you know, uh, where you go up to your friends and say, hey, I'm really concerned you're going to hell. Please come with me to church. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of thing where Jesus, by His Spirit's illumining and making Him real to you, He becomes so real that you begin to speak to your friends, your family, and anybody that you know. And in the Scripture, there's two very simple methods that are explained to us. One is called Andrew, who was the brother of Peter. So this is the simplest method of all. Andrew basically said, something's happened to me that I can't explain to you. But he says to Peter, come and see Jesus. So anybody who is a new Christian who doesn't know enough, they feel like, can still say, something's happening to me. Come and listen to this message or come and be a part of this group. That's the Andrew method. Or another scriptural thing in the book of Acts is Philip's method. Philip was, was an evangelist. Philip was anointed as a deacon in the church. And he goes by the, the move of the Holy Spirit and he begins to explain the scriptures to an Ethiopian eunuch in such a way that the eunuch comes to Christ and is baptized right on the spot. So, the, so whichever method you're ready for, it's simple. If Jesus is real to you, then you tell people how real He is. And guess what happens? The Holy Spirit anoints what you're doing and people start coming to Christ. Now, the reason that social change, and we'll spend a whole time on social change, I believe, but social change has always, always come as the church is revived. So one of the great revivalists of the first great awakening was a man by the name of George Whitfield. He's one of my heroes. He, he a powerful preacher of God. He he's the one that really taught and led the Wesleys to begin outdoor preaching and outdoor evangelism. Well, he led John Newton to Christ. And John Newton is the writer of Amazing Grace, the hymn that so many of us know. Well, then John Newton led William Wilberforce to faith. And it was William Wilberforce in the government as a member of parliament who convinced the government of England to abolish the slave trade. You understand, what we're saying is when the gospel of Jesus Christ grabs the heart of men and women, change comes. A significant turning point in the history of the world was when the English government said, there will be no more slave trade. And it all was a result of the revival, of the awakening there in the 1700s. So the last one of these is the idea of in-depth teaching. And what, we're, what he says here, Luke, as he writes about this amazing first century experience, he said they were devoted to the apostles' preaching and teaching. So what is this teaching? 
Well, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's the realization that the gospel is not elementary. It's not just the entrance into life with Christ, but that the gospel is actually the A through Z of life through Christ. Only when the Holy Spirit really begins to anoint and give unction and illuminate how important the gospel is and how deep the gospel is does the teaching of the church really have life and depth at the same time. See, what we're really talking about here is that it be, the real teaching of the gospel convicts you that your own righteousness cannot give you peace with God, cannot give you acceptance with God, that you can't patch up your own righteousness and be acceptable to God. And that when you are operating in your own production of righteousness, you can have no peace. Um, I have been going to some of the protests and to, to rallies to commit my support to equality and justice. And one of the sayings in, the, in those rallies is, no justice, no peace. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful statement, but it's not exactly what the, what the gospel says. The gospel says no righteousness, no peace. Because when you try to patch up your righteousness or you try to offer religious righteousness or works righteousness, all it is is self-righteousness. And it makes you utterly unacceptable to God, which means you have no peace to rule your heart. So when you depart from the truth of a righteousness that comes from God that is received by faith, then all you are, are living in is spiritual death, not peace. And so what we see and what I've experienced over the course of my church ministry life is that there, there are churches mired in legalism. Well, if you look, there's no life in such a church because the weight of the law crushes the church and crushes the people in the church. Judgment, condemnation, never feeling like you measure up. So people put on a mask of religiosity so they can have the appearance of righteousness, but underneath they are wrestling with guilt, shame, lust, anger, and all manner of negative emotions. But there's also the other extreme where there's, there's churches that are so welcoming that basically they're offering love that has no cost to it and forgiveness which has no price to it. And what you have in that is you have spiritual deadness because you have no righteousness, then you really cannot offer peace to, those, to the torment and the storm that comes from shame and guilt and anxiety. So what we're really talking about when we talk about in-depth teaching or apostolic teaching is we've got to realize that is. As much as the church is committed to teaching, one of the, I would call him a prophetic professor from Gordon-Conwell wrote this. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification. Although below the surface of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and, and ashamed. Many others have a theological commitment to the do doctrine of justification. But in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification 
for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their re recent religious performance, or their relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Few know how to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the whole alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation. This means that they must be conducted into the light of a full conscious awareness of God's holiness, the depth of their sin, and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for their acceptance with God. Not just at the outset of their Christian lives, but in every succeeding day. The, the opposite result will happen if this is not true. You will be filled with anxiety, pride, sensuality, and what Kierkegaard calls the sickness which leads to death. So as we, we look at this and we take it to heart, we are far more evil than we ever want to admit. And that evil within us will destroy us. It will limit us. And the Holy Spirit, in the midst of when he wants to renew you, will bring up the evil that's in your heart. He's not doing it to embarrass you. But he's bringing up the evil in your life so he can heal you. And so he can deal with it in the light, not in the darkness. And so what I believe he's doing personally, what I believe he's doing corporately, what I believe he's doing for our whole community is he's bringing up the evil into the light. And if you try to defend yourself, you will miss the light. If you try to excuse yourself, you won't be building an altar for the fire. And if you continue in the evil, then there'll be no tabernacle for the glory to dwell in. Please hear me on this. This is God's blueprint for renewing you personally, God's blueprint for pouring out His Spirit on our church, and God's blueprint for changing our community in ways that will have lasting effect for generations to come. I'm asking you, will you not call on the Holy Spirit with me that not just one of these elements will be present, but that all five will be present? Again, as I speak these words to you, I mean, my heart is full of desire and desperation in some ways that you will join with me to build an altar that God can send the fire to, that you'll build with me a tabernacle that God can fill with his glory. I've had glimpses of it. I've had taste of it. I want it to happen now, to happen here, but I can't do it alone None of us can do it alone. We have to say, God, you're speaking to me too. Will you become a person who says, I, I want to be a part of all five of those vitamins, all five of those elements? And will you make them a part of what you're praying right now, what you're receiving right now for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also for your own sake, that we would make such an impact in this generation for 
the world we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.